So, uh, again, welcome. Uh, open to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. A couple weeks ago, we began this series uh, in the book of Revelation. It's going to take us through the, the whole book. I want to seek to understand uh, why the Lord has included it in His Word. He's inspired it for our instruction, and so we want to do our best to understand uh, what He's teaching us in it. So far, we've covered eight verses. Um, if you could do your math, that's an average of four verses a week. Uh, and at this pace, we will finish the book of Revelation on January 1st, 2023. So we're going to start picking up the pace and taking slightly bigger chunks uh, of text, but it's important to start a little bit slower. We want to get our feet under us and, and understand what it is that, that we're reading uh, in this book. So this morning, we're going to start in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 9, and this is actually starting a new section of the book of Revelation. And uh, something that we didn't talk about before, but I want to just bring to your attention now is, is whenever we study a book of the Bible, it's really helpful if we have an, an outline or a basic structure of the book, sort of like a roadmap so that we know where we are and, and, and what we're looking at as we go through. And so the book of Revelation has a, has a prologue and an epilogue. The prologue is chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The epilogue is at the end, chapter 22, verses 8 to 21. And in between, from chapter 1, verse 9, to chapter 22, verse 7, that's the body or the core of the book. And the core of the book is made up of four visions, right? John has these visions from God, and there's four of them. Each one begins with John saying that he was in the Spirit. So we see that in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1, and chapter 21, verse 9. John being in the Spirit, and, and the Lord shows him something. And so the, the broad structure of the book looks something like this, what you see on the screen. So we're just starting into the core of the book today and starting into that first vision uh, that John has. So if we keep these, these big markers in place, that's going to help you to, to understand as we work through this book, uh, where we are and, and where we're going. Remember, the, the Bible, uh, books of the Bible are not just random collections of spiritual sayings. Uh, the Lord's doing something. The writers are doing something with what they're writing. They, the, there's a structure. Everything fits together. So as we move out of the prologue and into this first vision, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus shows up to John and commissions him to, to write letters to these churches in Asia. Now, Pastor Bob talked a little bit about that last week, these churches in what we now call Turkey. Uh, and in chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see what, what the Lord has to say to those churches in particular. Each church is going to have uh, a letter addressed to them as a part of this vision. But before we hear what Christ has to say to these churches… We're going to first learn more about who it is that speaks to the churches and who it is who still speaks to the churches, to us, today, through His Word. And so in this, the opening scene of this vision, going from here, chapter 1, verse 9, to the end of chapter 1 and verse 20, we're going to see two aspects of Christ's nature revealed uh, in elaborate detail, these two things that are essential if we're to have a truly 
biblical understanding of who Jesus is. See, in this scene, we're going to see both the, the strength and the kindness of Jesus, the glory and the graciousness of Jesus, the greatness and the gentleness of Jesus. So let's pray, and we'll start into the text. Lord God, You are, you are high and lifted up. You inhabit eternity, and Your name is holy. You dwell in a high and holy place, but You also dwell with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit to revive their hearts. So, Lord, as we come to Your Word, make us humble and contrite in spirit, revive us now according to Your Word. We ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So look with me at Revelation 1, starting in verse 9. First, John's going to set the stage for this vision. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is on this island Patmos. It's a little uh, island off the western coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea. He had been exiled there because of his gospel preaching. So he's on Patmos, verse 10, and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that's Sunday. I was in the Spirit. That doesn't mean that he was just having an especially good worship experience. That means that the Lord was revealing something to him. He was caught up by the Holy Spirit to see a vision. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. This is not the, the still, small whisper to your heart. This is unmistakable, unambiguous, loud and clear. What does this, this voice say? Verse 11. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So he's, he's commanded to, to write about what he sees in this vision and send, send those, those things that are being revealed to these to these churches, that commission is then repeated again in verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. It's interesting in, in what the Lord has commissioned John to do, write what you see in a book. He says, write what you see, not write what you hear. It reminds us that, that what we're dealing with here is apocalyptic literature. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And apocalyptic literature is filled with images. That's the, the primary communication tool, this revelation in, in symbols and, and images. See, in Old Testament prophecy, the common refrain was, thus says the Lord. Here, the common refrain may be more something like, thus shows the Lord. The Lord is revealing something to John, and He's doing so by way of these, these elaborate images. So what does the Lord show John? What does John see? And the first thing that we, we see that he, 
has revealed to him about Christ is the greatness of Christ, the greatness of Christ. So we look at verses 12 to to 16, John describes uh, who it is that he sees standing there speaking with him. And and as we go through, just keep in mind, John's, John's vision here is steeped in allusions to the Old Testament. In order to write what he sees, John employs the language of Old Testament visions of God. And like in those Old Testament visions, the goal here is not for us to construct a picture of what God looks like, right? The the focus is on what those images and symbols represent about who God is, what they reveal about the attributes of God. So, uh, Despite the intense imagery, the focus is not on what Christ looks like so much as what it reveals about who Christ is, all right? So what does John see? It says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. What does he see? And he's, gonna, he's going to describe as best he can what he sees of the Lord Jesus standing there. He's going to give this extraordinary 10-point description of what he sees. John doesn't know that we're supposed to have three-point sermons, not 10-point sermons. He has this 10-point description of what he sees, and it might seem overwhelming. Don't worry, it's supposed to. First, something of the location where Christ is. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 20, we learn that the golden lampstands are representative of the churches, these seven churches that that John has been instructed to write to. And so one standing in the middle of the lampstands is like a son of man. So Christ is in the midst of the churches. That tells us something about Him. He's not far off. He's present. He's there with His people in their midst. And and if the churches in Asia are suffering, if they're going through trial and tribulation, if they're being called to persevere, which is so much what this book is about, then this is important. The knowledge that Jesus is not far off, He's not taken a, a vacation, He's not forgotten about them, He's there in their midst. You see seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, Uh, More than describing just his appearance as a human being, uh, this title, Son of Man, is drawn from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel has an an apocalyptic vision, uh, sees the throne room of God, sees the Ancient of Days, God sitting on His throne, and one, like a Son of Man, comes to the Ancient of Days to receive authority and a kingdom. This Son of Man is the Messiah, the Anointed One, who would be God's King. Jesus appropriates this title uh, Himself to describe His own earthly ministry, right? He he would call Himself the Son of Man. That's That's a messianic reference. And so, to describe Jesus like this is, is not a reference just to that He's human, but, but a reference to His messianic identity and authority. I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. So John describes his clothing, and this robe and sash could be a reference to priestly garments. This is things that Israel's priests would wear. But it could also be a reference to authority. 
In the Roman army, the longer your robe, the higher your rank. And so the person whose robe reached all the way to the floor was the emperor. And so for John to say that his robe reached all the way to the feet may well be symbolic of Christ's royal authority and sovereignty. And if it is a reference to uh, the, the common practice in the Roman army, it may be a reminder to the churches he's writing to that while they may suffer at the hands of Rome, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. Again, this imagery comes from Daniel 7. There, it's not the Son of Man who has white hair, though. It's the Ancient of Days. It's God. So, John applies this description of God from the Old Testament to the Lord Jesus, implying that Jesus Himself is divine. He is God. The white hair does not indicate old age, but rather it's a symbol of the perfect wisdom of God the perfect wisdom that Christ has. Verse 14 again, his eyes were like a flame of fire. When we say that your eyesight has dimmed, it means you can't see well anymore. But if you have eyes like a flame of fire, it communicates the, the piercing clarity of sight. This would be symbolic of the absolute omniscience of Christ. He knows all and sees all. Nothing is hidden from Him. Verse 15, His feet were like burnished bronze when they'd been made to glow in a furnace. It's not just that His feet looked like bronze, like they were shiny or they were, they were strong. The bronze when it was made to glow in a furnace, and this tells us something about the white-hot purity and holiness of God. Just like precious metal, when it's heated in the fire, has all the impurities and the dross stripped away, so God is perfect in the all-consuming fire of His holiness. Verse 15 again, His voice was like the sound of many waters. Uh, if you were to compare what we read here in, in Revelation 1 to Daniel chapter 10, you'd see a lot of parallels between what John sees and what uh, what John sees here and what Daniel sees in, in, in Daniel 10. Now, Daniel 10, Daniel describes this angel that he sees in, in his vision. And the angel is described in very similar ways, but, but the way that John describes how he sees Jesus is superior to the way that, that Daniel sees this angel. And so, in Daniel 10, the angel's voice is described as being the sound of a multitude, a great crowd. That's, that's loud, but there's a limit that sound eventually wears itself out. There's, there's a limit to the noise a human being can make, both in power and duration. Now, if you're the parents of young children, you may not think that's true. But eventually, they do wear themselves out. But here, the voice of Christ is not described as the multitude of people, but as roaring waters. A few years ago, there was, a, there was an NFL uh, playoff game in Seattle uh, and at one point during the game, there was a, there was a big, very exciting play, and the, the noise that the crowd made registered on the Richter scale. 
The crowd caused a small earthquake. That's pretty intense. But it was temporary. Now compare that to Niagara Falls. That sound doesn't stop. The crowd noise eventually subsides, but the waters roar incessantly and inescapably. And this highlights the enduring and commanding authority of that which comes through the voice of Christ, His Word. It endures forever and drowns out all competition. Verse 16, in His right hand He held seven stars. We learn in verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the churches, which you're thinking, well, that doesn't necessarily help. What does that mean? We're not going to get into that too much right now. The angels show up again in chapters 2 and 3. The, the letters to the churches are addressed to the angels, so we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But right now, just notice that, that these angels of the seven churches are held in Jesus' right hand, the hand of strength and authority. Christ is not just among the churches, aware of their situation. He has His grasp on them. He's in control. Again, if the churches are suffering, and this is important, this brings comfort and assurance. Out of His mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Again, this symbolizes the unstoppable power and efficacy of the Word of God. The same imagery is used in Ephesians 6 and Hebrews 4, and then again in Revelation 19, that the Word of God is like a sword. It's the instrument of God's work. It's the, the powerful and effective means by which He accomplishes His purpose. And then verse 16, the end of verse 16, and His face was like the sun shining at full strength. Again, going back to Daniel 10, Daniel sees this, this angel whose face has the appearance of lightning. Lightning is brilliant, it's awe-inspiring, but it's transient and temporary. It flashes and then it's gone. It has no permanent existence in itself. But here, the face of Christ shines not like lightning, but like the sun. Its brilliance is not temporary or fading. It's permanent, pulsating with, with self-sufficient life and power. And that ties up all the things that we see attributed to Jesus here, it's symbolizing the pure, blazing brilliance of the glory of God. Well, that's a lot. It's a lot there, but, but be careful not to get lost in all the details and miss the point. What's the point? Let's look at how John responds because I think that tells us everything that we need to know about what the point is. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This was not the first time John had seen Jesus. John was an apostle. He walked with Jesus. This was not the first time that John had seen Jesus raised from the dead. He was a witness of the resurrection. It wasn't even the first time John had seen Jesus in His glory. He saw Jesus' face shine with glory on the mountain of transfiguration. John had seen Jesus before, and yet this was different. 
When John saw Jesus now, he collapsed in awe. And I I think John's response, and I think the point of this vision is to communicate and to be overwhelmed at the greatness of Christ. John's overwhelmed by the indescribable greatness of God's glory. Notice the number of times he uses the word like. It was like this or it was like that. You get the impression that he's struggling to write what he sees. He's grasping for language. Yet yet he finds the words lacking. He has to resort to simile and analogy. He could only say that it was was like this or it was like that, but but I can't really describe how awesome it was. He has no words to describe the indescribable. And the cumulative effect of these images illustrates for us the glorious greatness of God. But John's response is not just sensory overload at God's glory. See, in the the light of God's glory, John is also overwhelmed by the acute knowledge of his own sinfulness. John's reaction here is very similar to the way that, that prophets reacted in the Old Testament when they had visions of God, very similar to, say, Ezekiel 1, or Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah was not only overwhelmed by God's glory as he had this vision of God in the throne room, but he's also overwhelmed by the acute knowledge of his own sinfulness. What does he say when, when, he, when he comes into the throne room and he, and he sees the cherubim flying around, covering their feet, covering their face, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. What does Isaiah say? He doesn't say, well, this is pretty cool. He says, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is terrified because he knows he's a sinner. John falls to the ground here, not only acknowledging God's worthiness, but also his own unworthiness. And this is the only right reaction of sinners in the presence of a holy and perfect God. See, here we're we're brought face to face, perhaps like nowhere else in the Bible, with the unveiled greatness of Christ. So I, I want you to think about this. Is this the way that you think about the Lord Jesus? See, I think many people, including professing Christians, treat Jesus more like a good luck charm or a life coach than the gloriously great God that He has revealed to be here. But but once we see Jesus as He reveals Himself to be in His Word, we can no longer treat Him like that. The, the, the truth of who Christ is in His holiness, in His glory, burns away the pretense and the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness that characterizes so much of our spirituality and, and leaves just the real us there. And it burns away the, the preconceptions and assumptions and false beliefs about, about who He is and, and leaves the real Him there. 
And so the real us comes face to face with the real Jesus. So many people are content with a tame, domesticated Jesus. A Jesus of their own creation. A Jesus that would never convict you of sin, would never challenge your life, your choices, your actions, your attitudes, your decisions. A Jesus who would only celebrate everything about you. He seems to love everything that you love and hate everything that you hate. But if that's who you think Jesus is, then you need to know that it's not Jesus you're worshiping, it's yourself. That Jesus is a figment of your imagination. The real Jesus is the one who's given to us in the pages of the Bible. We have to deal with Jesus not as we want Him to be, but as who He reveals Himself to be. Because the real Jesus, who's revealed here in unexcelled greatness, brings even the people closest to Him to, his, to their knees in the presence of His holy purity and glory. And so in the presence of the one whose, whose all-knowing eyes are like a flame of fire, whose word is like a two-edged sword, we are in the words of Hebrews 4, open and laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And if this is where the vision left us, then we might well tremble in fear. But then Jesus speaks. And we find that Jesus is not only a great God, but He's also a gentle Savior. Look again at verse 17. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet like a dead man. And He placed His right hand on me. And imagine the nail-pierced hand of Jesus coming to rest on John's shoulder. He placed His right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. Don't miss the power of that statement. Do not be afraid. Jesus does not come and reprimand John either for his sin or for his fear. He speaks words of comfort and assurance. To the grieving sinner, Jesus shows Himself to be a gentle Savior, do not be afraid. See, John is, in a sense, right to fear, right? That he's a sinner in the presence of God. That's appropriate. And Jesus tells him, do not be afraid. But notice when he says, do not be afraid, that the reasoning that John is not supposed to be afraid, it has nothing to do with John. Jesus does not say, do not be afraid. John, you're, you're actually really not that bad. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, there's others who are far worse. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, just think about all those good things that you've done for me. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, you're an apostle, so that has to count for something. Jesus does not offer comfort on the basis of anything that is in John. And the same is true for us. In the presence of Christ, if we want to hear the words, do not be afraid, we cannot rely on anything that's inside of us, anything that we've done or who we are in comparison to others. The fact that, 
that Jesus tells John not to be afraid has nothing to do with who John is. It has everything to do with who Jesus is. What he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. It has everything to do with who Jesus is. John's not to be afraid, not because of who he is, but because of who Jesus is. John doesn't need to fear because of Jesus' deity. I am the first and the last, the living one. These are Old Testament descriptions of God. Jesus says, I I am the Lord God. You can almost hear the echoes of Paul's statements in Romans 8. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. John need not fear because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Verse 18, And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Christ tells John not to fear because he died and rose again. He says, John, you don't have to fear because of the gospel. John, do not be afraid. I died instead of you. John, do not be afraid. I paid the penalty for your sin. John, do not be afraid. Because I live, you also will live. John, do not be afraid. Death has no claim on me, so death no longer has a claim on you. Again, you can almost hear the the echoes of, of Paul's statements in Romans 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised and is who's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. John need not fear because of Jesus' dominion over death. Again, verse 18, I have the keys of death and of Hades. To have the keys to something means that you are in control, you have the authority to open and close, and this is a metaphorical way of speaking about Jesus' authority over life and death. He's the one who has the power over life and death, not just physical life and physical death, but but more importantly, spiritual life and spiritual death, eternal life and eternal death. And John need not fear because Jesus who is God, is the one who has power over life and death. And as John plainly says in his first letter, whoever has the Son has life. And again, as Paul says in Romans 8, not even death will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like John, believers need not be afraid to stand before Christ, not because we are good, but because He is good, not because we've earned it, but because He's gracious, not because we deserve it, but because He's gentle. Well, I think some of us need to take the greatness of Christ more seriously. I think some of us also need to take more seriously what the Bible says about the gentleness of Christ. See, many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, worry that when we see Him, Jesus' first instinct will not be to gently comfort us with His grace. That Jesus' first instinct when He sees us might be to scold us or reprimand us. 
I doubt we would, we would say that. that that's, not, that's not our formal theology. That's not the theology of our heads. But in terms of the way that we think and feel and relate, the way, the way that we think about the Lord in our hearts, that may be our functional theology. I think deep down many of us worry that while God may not be angry with us, He is in general disappointed with us. Before we can enter into the joy of His presence, we're going to need a good, long talking to. And friends, that's just a Protestant version of purgatory. That's a lie. See, the reality is that for many of us, including myself, though we have a thorough theology of grace in our minds, we tend to practice and think that Jesus is less gracious than He really is. We have a tendency to disgrace God. We know we can't earn our salvation. That's all of grace. And yet, we still can't quite bring ourselves to grasp the gentle heart of Christ towards us when we're still sinners. I read a book recently, I know, shocker, and I I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that this is going to end up being a Christian classic. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Dane Ortland actually is a pastor in the town that I grew up in. Naperville, Illinois. This book, he's written to show the, the, the heart of Christ as one of gentleness, and that seems to be far different from the way that we are inclined to think of Christ. So I'd highly recommend it. This is a book you should read. One of the best uh, lines of the book, or one of the best sections of the book, summarizes this point well. This is what he says. It says, without realizing what we are doing, we quietly assume that one so high and exalted, Christ, has a corresponding difficulty drawing near to the despicable and unclean. Sure, Jesus comes close to us, we agree, but He holds His nose. The risen Christ, after all, is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose voice is like the roar of many waters, and who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of His mouth, and whose face is like the sun shining in full strength. In other words, this one who is so unspeakably brilliant that his resplendence cannot adequately be captured with words, so ineffably magnificent that all language dies away before his splendor, but this is the one whose deepest heart is more than anything else gentle and lowly. And on that day when we stand before him, we will weep with relief shocked at how impoverished a view of His mercy-rich heart we had. I think we get a glimpse of the same thing here in this passage. Christ is not standing over you saying, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. To those who trust Him, Christ says, you are afraid because you know who you are. Do not be afraid because of who I am. Perhaps you're here this morning or you're joining us online and you are not sure what Jesus would say to you if you stood before Him in His glory. And that is the destiny for every person. Man is appointed to die once and after that to face judgment 
and the Lord Jesus is the judge. We will all stand before Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead. He holds the keys of death and Hades, which means the authority to grant eternal life and condemn to eternal death belongs to Him. And so, you need to know for certain that in the presence of His glory, your sin will be revealed. Nothing is hidden from His sight, and there is perfect justice with God. But know, too, that that the gentleness of Christ invites your repentance. The gentleness of Christ promises your pardon if you will come to Him. Jesus Himself invites us. John records this in the gospel. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the same invitation is repeated at the end of the book of Revelation. So we are invited to come to Jesus to receive pardon and life freely from His hand. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take of the water of life without cost. So come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will know Him to be both a great God and a gentle Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have so revealed yourself in your word that we may know what is true of you. We know we cannot comprehend you fully. You are incomprehensible. We know we cannot see fully your glory, your greatness, your holiness. We get merely glimpses, but we thank You that what You have revealed to us is true and we can know You truly and we thank You that You have revealed Yourself ultimately to us in the Lord Jesus and Lord, we pray that we might, as we we consider this vision that John had of him, Lord, help us to grasp who he is, the greatness and the gentleness of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We will thank you in His name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week.